I was either going to join the Foreign Service, which I was keeping my bona fides up with, and, um, uh, or join the CIA, which was looking more attractive at the time, although I've, I've forgotten why. Uh, and then a couple of things happened. One thing that happened that was kind of interesting was I was rejected by the Foreign Service by a board of senior ambassadors sitting around a table who told me that I sounded too much like a Navy guy and not enough like a diplomat. And I was astounded because nobody in the Navy thought I sounded like a Navy guy. This is Preble Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Welcome to another episode of the Preble Hall podcast. I'm Marcus Jones of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy. And our distinguished guest for the day, retired Captain Peter M. Schwartz. Captain Schwartz is probably the dean of the history of U.S. naval strategic policy over the last several decades, a distinguished figure who served as an officer of the United States Navy and retired as a captain in 1993. He is a graduate of the Naval Reserve Officers Training Program at Brown University. He served as an unrestricted line officer with two tours of duty as an advisor to the South Vietnamese Navy. While on active service, he earned a master's degree from Johns Hopkins University's uh, SICE, the NHTSA school, as well as another from Columbia University and then had two tours of duty in the office of the Chief of Naval Operations, Strategy, Plans, and Policy Division, the famous OP60, Op60 shop. Um, During the Reagan administration, when John Lehman was Secretary of the Navy, he was assigned to the Strategic Concepts Branch, Op603, under Captain Roger Barnett, and became the action officer for the Navy's maritime strategy at a key inflection point in history in 1983-84. Uh, Later on, when the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, he was serving as the senior naval attache with the U.S. mission to NATO at Brussels. Uh, At the end of his career in uniform, he was special assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Colin Powell. Following his years of active naval duty, he uh, worked as a research analyst. That's, I guess, probably the way a lot of us younger uh, people connected to the Navy know him. Uh, at the Center for Naval Analyses in Alexandria, Virginia. In that capacity, he gathered both historical and current information and produced uh, uh, almost innumerable influential briefings and reports that uh, have influenced naval officers and historians in their thinking about current and future naval strategy and the history of the Navy as an institution and a sea service. Uh, With that, welcome, Peter. Thanks very much. Pleasure Um, to be here. I think that perhaps the best way to start would be to have you expand a little bit on your personal career development and your background. What brought you to the U.S. Navy in the first place? Was it the Vietnam War? Um, and uh, what alternatives did you have at the time? To start off, I guess the overview is I had the most unorthodox career of any naval officer that you've probably ever heard of, and that would include Admiral Rickover. Uh, I. Uh, was in ROTC uh, and was commissioned an ensign uh, upon graduation from Brown. And that was because my father was in the infantry during World War II and uh, fought under General Patton uh, from the landings in France uh, to uh, Lorraine, where he was uh, wounded severely uh, by a German 88 millimeter and spent the rest of the war in the hospital. 
uh, and was promoted uh, to uh, private first class uh, and won a bronze star. Uh, he had tried desperately to avoid any kind of military service. Uh, he worked in a war industry, married my mother, had me. None of that worked, and he was eventually drafted anyway, and he was pretty fatalistic about all of that. He knew I was going to get drafted, uh, and he certainly didn't want me in foxholes. He'd had enough of foxholes. Uh, and, of course, he'd come out as a war hero, receiving a bronze star from General Patton's staff. So um, there I was, an ensign in the Navy, uh, except I'd taken a midshipman cruise, and I thought it was interesting, and uh, I didn't drown or crash or anything, um, but I didn't think it was for me. And so I asked for a deferment to go to graduate school because my passion was international relations and uh, uh, the history segment of that uh, international relations uh, degrees. Uh, and the Navy said, fine, uh, the Vietnam War was uh, cranking up. They had lots of space, uh, and uh, personnel policies were relatively loose. And I went off to SICE for two years. What year was that? This is 65. So from 65 oh. to 67, I'm at SICE. The Vietnam War is raging. The Navy has, uh, is starting to and continuing to bomb the North. And the Navy has invented the 1,000-craft Brownwater Navy, uh, of reconfigured World War II craft uh, and sent them over to Vietnam. You mentioned you had a midshipman cruise. Uh, yep. Do you remember what it was? Uh, USS Newport News. Gorgeous ship. All-gun cruiser. The way a ship should look. Uh, went out for target practice. and I, as a midshipman, and the other midshipmen were standing there aghast at the fact that couldn't hit anything. Um, so that was, that was what I remember from the cruise. Oh, and then uh, I determined that, uh, obviously, with my interest, uh, I probably wanted to be in intelligence, because that sounded like the sort of thing that people that were interested in what I was interested in did, without knowing very much about it. And so the intelligence officer on the Second Fleet staff, because it was a Second Fleet flagship, uh, took me over to an intel facility as a midshipman to see what was going on. And he came in, I remember it was Lieutenant Gregor, and he brought me in and he introduced me around to the room and he, he had to swap satchels or something or turn in film strips or whatever it was that he was doing. And uh, uh, he mentioned the fact that I was interested in naval intelligence. And people looked at me, these are intelligence officers, and said, why? What, what's the matter with you? Are your eyes bad? Are you? And then I looked around and I realized I was in the land of the lame, the halt, the blind, the deaf, the dumb. I, I, it was like being, I was in a hospital. And I said, well, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think intelligence is going to work out quite. I'm, I'm still pretty healthy. I'm just interested in this other stuff. So when I got up to Johns Hopkins, uh, the Navy was swollen. This is 1967. Uh, and had to all kinds of new billets that didn't exist. Uh, and a reservist like me, because I only had a two-year commitment, um, ROTC, I refused to get the uh, scholarship because I could wait, work more and make more money in the summers uh, as a uh, union baker. I was from Rhode Island, a union-run state at the time. Uh, I was a member of the confectionery and bakery 
workers union. <laughs> no kidding. And uh, and I'm, I had I I made more money than even guys in construction on the summer. This is a fascinating uh, footnote to the rest of the story. So actually. I only so I only needed I only needed the two year commitment. And I had to do that because of my father. This is the last, he was my father. It was the last time he ever told me to do anything that I, I listened to. Um, so I was stuck in ROTC and I had a, a, a commission and I had to finish my studies at SICE and um, all kinds of billets opened up in the Navy for reservists that they didn't want to put um, regulars in uh, who they thought were career designated. And I was already behind at times because I'd spent two years in graduate school instead of two years on board a ship as a division officer. So uh, they sent me to Coronado, California, a place I'd never heard of. And, and Coronado, California, for anybody that doesn't know, is, is heaven. I mean, you would think that if they really didn't like me, they would have sent me to ADAC or something. And they, they sent me to Coronado. And I was to be an instructor at um, the school that was training people going to Vietnam because I had a degree in international relations, uh, and I, they, and for whatever reason. So there I was for a year and a half at Coronado, and I discovered a few things. Uh, number one, I was a really good lecturer. Uh, I could really brief, and I could relate to people that were going to Vietnam. Second of all, that was bizarre, because everybody else on the staff had been to Vietnam except me, and everyone had Three rows of ribbons at least, and I had one national defense ribbon, um, and I couldn't stand it. And after a year and a half of teaching Buddhism, environmental uh, improvement, population and resources control, psychological operations, counter-guerrilla operations, history of Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera, uh, customs and culture, I volunteered to go to Vietnam. It sounds like you were already pretty much an expert on everything you were likely to encounter there. And I knew everybody in country because I'd taught them, despite the fact that I hadn't ever been to the place exactly. they were going. Yeah. Um, and so I went through a training program that was devised by a chief that I was working with who was having a good time and was a personnel man and knew how to do this stuff like the back of his hand. I went to Army Psychological Operations School, so I had some background with the Army, four months. I went to three months of language school, uh, which meant that I was um, twice as proficient in Vietnamese as any other Navy advisor in country. Well, that must have been immensely valuable. Well, yes, but now let's put it in perspective. I had 12 weeks of Vietnamese, which is a very, very hard language to learn for an American, um, as opposed to the six that the other advisors had. So, I mean, we, we uh, but nevertheless, I, I was able to, to look like I was trying harder. Um, and I went to survival school and weapons training and all of that, and wound up an advisor with the Vietnamese Navy on an island off the coast of Vietnam called Phu Quoc, where the Nook Mom comes from. And I was there for, I guess, about nine months as part of an advisory group, and we operated uh, in the Khmer Peninsula and in the river and canal system between Vietnam and Cambodia. A uh, lot of coastal patrol, a lot of riverine patrol, uh, and I was the guy that I, I was the guy that nobody wanted on his boat because I had the loudspeakers that were saying, "Give up, stop living in the bush like rats. Come out. The government of South Vietnam will love you and give you 40 acres and a mule or whatever the Vietnamese equivalent of that was, um, an acre and a buffalo." And um, 
and I also, oh, also I, I, I did airdrops because that was another thing that psychological operations officers did. This doesn't sound like the expected antecedent to a career devoted to Navy strategic policy at the highest levels. Hold that thought. <laughs> Hold that thought. And so um, I would go up in an airplane with uh, Mr. Dees, who was an war Army warrant officer and a bird dog. He'd be uh, piloting the plane, and I was, uh, I was his naval flight officer. And um, my job was to dump leaflets out, which I knew how to do, and you had to worry about the airstream and all of that. And uh, one day I was in the village uh, near the base. It was a Vietnamese base, but also had some Americans there. And um, went by the fish market. And there was all the fish wrapped in my leaflets. Well, it turned out, after I asked a few questions in my fractured Vietnamese, that uh, yes, every time I went up in that airplane, a platoon of Vietnamese workers would scurry out to the jungle or the scrub or whichever part of the island I was uh, operating over and uh, collect all of these things and then sell them, bundle them up and sell them down in the market to the fishmongers. I said, heck, I, why don't I just give them the bundles, right? Before I, I mean, I, I have to untie the bundles and put them in the plane and everything. Um, so I did that and- Well, you're likely to make an enemy out of all those people collecting the leaflets. There we are, but that's, that's one sea story I remember of being <laughs> a psychological operations officer. The other thing that happened was um, there was this charismatic uh, commander in Vietnam who I barely knew or understood the import of named Bud Zumwalt. Um, and he had an idea. He had an idea about every 10 seconds. Uh, and one of his ideas that he had was that the Vietnamese Navy now was going to take over from the U.S. Navy because he'd been told that that was going to happen by President Nixon in Vietnamization. And instead of being attentive uh, students of the uh, enginemen and gunner's mates that were teaching them how to run a swift boat or a river patrol boat or a uh, river assault craft or whatever, um, they were deserting. And they were deserting because at these bases that they were told to go, their, their wife and children, and they probably had six, seven, eight children, um, were living someplace in Vietnam and they were stuck in some base paid for in Vietnamese money by the Vietnamese Navy, which wasn't a uh, very lucrative way to make money. And uh, they had no idea what was going on back home, which was the center of their life. And so they were leaving. And there was nothing for them to do and nothing for their family to do at the base uh, because there was nothing. It was just a base that the American Seabees had carved out of uh, Delta Mud uh, to take over from the Americans. The Americans were, we were on largely, not exclusively, on board ships that had been pulled out of North mothballs and anchored either in the rivers or off the coast. We had a big repair ship anchored uh, off Fuquak Island all the time I was there. First, the uh, Krishna uh, converted LST that had become a repair ship, and then a, uh, a Liberty ship that had been converted into a much more capable repair ship. Um, the Tutuila. Uh, anyway, so Zumwalt figured the solution is these people should be growing crops at their bases and they should be raising pigs and chickens. And then that'll give the wives something to do. It'll give everybody something to eat. 
husband won't desert, we'll win the war. One day, a first class named Moses arrived at my base to explain all this to me. And I said, terrific idea. Any Vietnamese in the Navy know anything about this? Well, he didn't know. He didn't care. He was an American sailor. He'd been sent down to do this. I said, well, I'll tell you what. You go on back to Saigon, tell whoever sent you to get a message from Vietnam Navy headquarters, they have a headquarters, to my Vietnamese boss, Commander Kim, telling him that he's about to be inundated with pigs and chickens and American advisors and whatnot, and he should get ready and stand by, because this is important to the Vietnamese Navy. Whoa, gee, Mr. Swartz, I don't know. Anyway, he went back to Saigon, and I'm next visited by Lieutenant Commander Passarella, who was, asked me what part of a direct order didn't I understand. Admiral Zumwalt said, and I said, you're going to lose this war. This is, this, is a, uh, this is a poster child for the wrong-headed approach we're taking to everything. You're starting a brand new program in the midst of the period when we're supposed to be turning things over to the Vietnamese, and you're doing it yourself through the advisory network. Bad. Don't do that. I was ordered to Saigon to relieve a commander and take over as the U.S. Navy Senior Psychological Operations Officer in a new directorate that was called N-9, Vietnamese Navy Welfare, uh, otherwise known by most people as pigs and chickens. Uh, I had a boss who was one of the greatest people I've ever met in my life, uh, Commander John Walker, a Princeton ROTC graduate, surface warfare guy. Uh, and together, he and I and about 30 other people uh, oh, and I'm a Jewish boy from Providence, Rhode Island. I don't know from pigs, right? Uh, so I'm learning fast. Uh, we set up the pilot pig project. Uh, I spent much of my time with the Vietnamese, pushing them forward and getting Vietnamese in Saigon to talk to the Vietnamese that I was talking with in Antoy. And uh, the pigs and chickens program continued in the field, but I was in Saigon. I was unhappy with Saigon. I didn't want to go to Saigon. I was asked by the senior naval advisor while I was standing at a brace in front of his desk why I didn't want to come to Saigon. And I said, because this place is a flesh pot. You people all have girlfriends. Uh, I didn't come to Vietnam to do that. And uh, I'm happy where I am on the boats. Um, and you guys are staff guys, and you're pushing paper, and I didn't come over here to push paper. Uh, and I notice on your finger there's this large thing. You guys are all lifers, Naval Academy graduates. I think that's great. If it works for you, that's well. Uh, it doesn't work for me. It wouldn't have worked for me. And uh, I don't want to go to Saigon. I want to come back with a bunch of reservists working in ragtag units, working with ragtag Vietnamese units out on the boats. Uh, and uh, he said, well, that's terrific. Thank you very much for all of that. Your desk is over there. Um, <laughs> took me weeks to get back to, to Antoy, Fuquak Island, to get all my stuff. And by then, half my stuff had gone adrift. Um, within a month, I had moved in with a Vietnamese girl who is sitting about two feet away from me right now. And we just celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary. Um, yeah. Almost I, every uh, aspect of what you just described is mildly ironic, if not. I, <laughs> I, I, I was at the peak of hypocrisy, right? 
I also discovered when I got my first fitness report that I was graded one out of 12 of lieutenants on this ComNav 4V staff. I was a dynamite staff officer. Now, for all of you who are in the Navy who are listening to this, um, that's caused you to yawn, uh, and rightly so, given the way the Navy is. Um, and for the rest of you, you would think that that set me on a great path, and it did not, because nobody in the Navy gives a damn about somebody who's a great staff officer. The well, essence of the Navy, and we'll come up to the, into this later, is operations. And while I had been doing a strange kind of operation, I had been on an operation and had become imbued with the importance of operations. So what was the Navy coming out of Vietnam like then? Um, not just for an officer like you, uh, with your unique kind of background and, and entree into, in, into those considerations, but, but uh, what was the service facing? Um, first of all, um, I'm, I'm a lieutenant, I was a lieutenant then, so I had a lieutenant's eye view of what was going on, um, and, uh, uh, and I, the, so the easy answer is I'm not sure I knew the answer to that question at that time. Um, I was aware of the war in the north and that the Navy had pilots and that there was aviation, but I wasn't connected with it. I was with Army aviation, as I just noted, of, of a strange sort. Um, the uh, lots of people were getting out. All the people that I knew, almost all the people I knew at Coronado when I was teaching were getting out and going into other careers. Nobody was staying in. Nobody expected them to stay in. They were being thrown out. And this was especially disastrous in the Army, where 19-year-old uh, garage mechanics uh, had turned into helicopter pilots and bird dog pilots and were having the time of their life and uh, were skilled at what they did and were told that the U.S. Army didn't need them anymore. And uh, today you can interview these guys, and it was the most meaningful time in their life. You can interview PBR sailors, the most meaningful time of their life. But when they went back to Big Navy, they were at a loss. Uh, it wasn't, a destroyer isn't the same as being on a PBR with 50 caliber machine guns and uh, 40 knots and all of that. Um, the Navy uh, was big. There were clubs everywhere. If you were on a little base, there'd be an AC Ducey club, there'd be a chief's club, there'd be an officer's club. Um, there was uh, lots of airplanes. You could catch a hop almost anywhere. Uh, I'm a lieutenant, right? So remember, that's the Navy that I'm, I'm looking at. Um, but obviously, the Navy was bouncing back into big ships against Russians. The boss in Vietnam had gone back to Washington to head that all up. That's Admiral Zumwalt. And uh, I was oblivious to all that. I was, I was a counterinsurgency guy who spoke a little Vietnamese, had a Vietnamese wife. Um, didn't, uh, had, had no plans to spend a career in the Navy, had a degree from SICE, uh, had passed the Foreign Service exam, had passed certain CIA exams, and uh, I was like all those other reservists that were getting out. Uh, I knew some lifers, especially very senior ones that I'd met in Vietnam, and one of them, Admiral Zumwalt, said, I want you to come back to Washington. I'm gonna run a bunch of people programs and I'd like you to be part of it. And I said, well, that sounds interesting. I can do that for a year or two before I join the Foreign Service. Sure. I'd be with all, some of my, my buddies from Vietnam, who I had met then, who were Zumwalt guys. 
Uh, and so I was involved in something called the Intercultural Relations Program, which was interesting. Um, one of the things that the Navy, and this is where I started applying my skills with Little Navy uh, into Big Navy issues. The Intercultural Relations Program. Yes. So the Intercultural Relations Program was lumped in with the Race Relations Program, the Drug and Alcohol Abuse Mitigation Program, the Drug and Alcohol Abuse uh, Rehab Center Program, and a management, uh, Human Resource Management Program, which I think was called the Human Resource Management Program, which was trying to apply business school principles to the way the Navy ran things. Um, and all of that was called the Human Resource Management Program, and I was in the Intercultural Relations Program because I had some knowledge of what it was like to get along with people in another culture. Um, and I was enjoying the work. And uh, it was good. And the program was expanding because Admiral Zumwalt was the head of, oh, and why was this intercultural relations program important to Big Navy? It was important to Big Navy because President Johnson and then later President Nixon were trying to save money by homeporting ships abroad as opposed to in the United States. And hold that thought as to why we were abroad in the first place, what we were doing abroad, and what was better, homeporting in the States or abroad. This later crops up as a major issue in my career, but at that time I was uh, down at the very bottom of the food chain, uh, trying to set up little teams around the world in Yokosuka, La Maddalena, Siganella, Gaeta, uh, different places, um, to teach Navy people and their wives that foreigners were okay and they shouldn't lie, cheat, steal, even if foreigners were lying, cheating, and stealing them and they should become more culturally acclimated. And we had all kinds of contractors that were trying to sell us bills of goods as to how best to train people to do this. And there was, because there were three fleet sinks at that time, they set up three lieutenant commander billets, uh, and I was one of the guys that was doing that, in Hawaii, in uh, Norfolk, and in London. So one day I came home and said to Twee, how'd you like to go to London? I've never been anywhere except Vietnam, Providence, Rhode Island, Washington, and a whole bunch of trips. And uh, she said, yeah, London would be great. Why don't we go to London? So I said, since I'm setting up the billet, I wrote the billet description. It was ideal for a guy like me. So we went to London, Twee and I, three-year tour. Obviously, I was going to get thrown out of the Navy after three years. I was going to be up for lieutenant commander. I was not going to make lieutenant commander. I was going to get $15,000 separation pay and a free a plane ticket back to my home of record. And uh, I was either going to join the foreign service, which I was keeping my bona fides up with, and, um, uh, or join the CIA, which was looking more attractive at the time, although I've forgotten why. Uh, and then a couple of things happened. One thing that happened that was kind of interesting was I was rejected by the Foreign Service, by a board of senior ambassadors sitting around a table who told me that I sounded too much like a Navy guy and not enough like a diplomat. And I was astounded because nobody in the Navy thought I sounded like a Navy guy. Um, but it was okay because I had stuff to do with the CIA and I was going to get 15K 
which should help me a, a long ways through law school if that was what I was going to do, which I think we were going to do then, law school. I was promoted to lieutenant commander. Holy cow. I buy $15,000. You asked me what was the Navy like after Vietnam? It was poor, and so therefore they'd frozen all orders to non-essential staffs like Sinkus Navier. And I was stuck in Navier not for three years, but for four years. Whereupon they were going to throw me out. I wasn't eligible for the Foreign Service anymore. I had to take all the tests all over again, which I was dutifully doing. And my only thin read was the possibility of the agency. So I was really stuck, I thought. Left with the Navy as the yes <laughs> as the recourse career option. Yeah, but but not for but maybe even you know but not for a career. Yeah, I was going to get bounced as a lieutenant. But of course I was. I thought because I, the career I've just described to all of you folks out in podcast land uh, doesn't sound like anything that the Navy would ever promote anybody from to being a lieutenant commander. But it happened. And my boss said, here's what you do. My boss was a genius. This guy's not, we're going to his interment at Arlington in a couple of weeks. He was a genius at personnel uh, named Steve Van Westendorp. He too was a Brown graduate and a Rhode Island native. Um, but he was a bureau guy. And he said, what does it mean to be a bureau guy? He understood the ways of naval personnel and manpower and planning and promotions and assignments like the back of his hand. And he said, you write a letter to the chief of naval personnel and thank him very much for promoting you for the letter that you got that, that promoted you to lieutenant commander and ask him what he had in mind and what the Navy has in mind for you given the fact that you've had an unconventional career so far. He's encouraging you to write a letter to the chief of naval personnel. Yes. As a lieutenant commander. As a lieutenant, as a, as a lieutenant commander selectee. what this, the right. chief of naval to, personnel's intentions for your career exactly. were. Exactly. And say, I, and there was something in the letter that said, uh, we all know that people are promoted because of their potential, not because of their uh, record, and because that is bureau propaganda. And uh, what is it that you regard as my potential? Would that have been a typical thing for a lieutenant commander to do? I've, every, I've never told anybody this story who's ever said, oh, yeah, that happens all the time. It seems no. pretty remarkable. Yes. And I had no idea to do this, but I went home and I did it. And he took a look at it, and he massaged it a bit. I also didn't know that my boss's boss's boss, the deputy commander of Navier, Admiral Dong Engen, who was a um, uh, famous Navy aviator, was also a political military strategic planning admiral. I didn't know that. I, w I was in human resources. Oh, and oh, they, Ellen, they canceled the Internet Cultural Relations Program to save money. Um, and uh, I wound up doing race relations work almost all the time that I was connected with that program. It's fascinating. As priorities change, they stay the same. Guy, guy walked in my office one day and said, we're behind on, the, uh, on, on, on getting Upward written. Upward was the first Navy race relations training program. We're behind on setting up defense Relation, race relations school. We're behind on this. 
and um, switch all of your activities over to that right now. Uh, and, uh, and I did. And uh, they were unhappy with what earlier people had done, seemed to have been happy with what I had done. Um, so the letter came back from the chief of naval personnel. And it said, you know, you've got two viable alternatives as a subspecialist. Number one, you can be in human resource management, because that's what you're doing now, was in your previous tour. Um, number two, your degree is in international relations, uh, and you've got Vietnam experience. So you could choose political, military, strategic planning. So I said to my boss, what do you think? And he said, it's not a choice. I said, OK, that's how I think, too. Um, he said, uh, what year would that have been, approximately? 75? He said, you write back and tell him that you want to be assigned to Op 60. So I said, right, what's Op 60? He said, Op 60 is the Navy strategy shop. And you want that assignment now. And you want to be moved from London now to that shop. And if the letter comes back, sure, then do it. Can you talk a little bit more about this category of officer, a political military specialist? The Navy has a number of subspecialties, which are usually, which are supposed to be used to assign people who have not specialties, which is what flying an airplane, driving a ship, driving a submarine, eating a snake. Those are specialties, right? Subspecialties are things like financial management, ops research, uh, political military strategic planning, uh, right now, FAO, uh, Foreign Area Officers, um, and, and there are some others. I, those are the was ones that a particularly that, large cadre of officers, or was it considered a pretty arcane subspecialty? Uh, let me, um, I, I did not know that at the time. I had no idea. Uh, the answer was, depending on who you talk to, if you talk to the OR guys, they would have told you, yes, it's pretty arcane and useless. Um, if you talk to the people that were in the subspecialty at the time, which included four-star admirals like Admiral Crow, um, it was, now I'm getting way ahead of myself, it was a wonderful career, and I dealt with top-notch people all the way through. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't know that at the time, as Lieutenant, Lieutenant Commander Selectee Swartz is sitting there listening to his boss explain to him what Op 60 is and sending off his second letter to but the chief. But you had that good advice. Yes. Uh, in the form of a superior officer yep. or a mentor or somebody else. Stevie and My whole life would not have been the same without it. My whole life would not have been the same without Admiral uh, Captain Rao ordering me to Saigon, where besides meeting Twee, I discovered how good I was at pushing paper, certain kinds of paper, policy, strategy, operations. Yeah, there seems to be a theme in a lot of the, um, the discussions I have and the interviews I've done about the, the kinds of relationships very promising people have. Um, with, with mentors or superior officers who take uh, a, a, a particular interest in their development or in opening their eyes to opportunities that they may not have been aware of before. And I suppose in some sense the Navy is like any other human organization in the world that way. Or is it uh, more so? Is it more stylized somehow? Don't know. Don't know. I didn't go to the personnel route. I went the I, I went the strategy and policy well, I mean, route. You, you, you spoke to the, 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 the difference between... Um, kind of narrow technical professional competency and a broader sort of intellectual competency. Yeah, I, and the way that might be married in some people turns out to be fortuitous to the opportunities they have. Um, yeah, I, 
this this is a this will emerge probably as a theme later on in the podcast. But and, and you, Marcus, know me. Um, I have a certain reputation for being a mentor, and now you see where that comes from. I'm paying back those people that mentored me. Is and, that a part of the and I'm very con- I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm doing that. Uh, and and I was kind and I'm conscious of how useful it was and important it was to my career and my life. Uh, and so I try to be as helpful as I can to when I see somebody who merits it, right? Uh, that that sort of thing as well. I guess what I'm asking is is whether you see the Navy as as an institution historically in your in, in your career and perhaps in the careers of people to whom you were connected or people you studied as uniquely emphasizing that. As, I, as cultivating that in its officers, look for the talent beneath you, help to grow it, uh, nurture it in the right ways, here's some insights into how to do that well, um, or not. I, I, I guess the, the honest answer is I don't know. Um, I do know that I had lots of exposure to admirals and captains and commanders who didn't think much of me. They're not figuring in this story. I stay, you know, I, 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 uh, they, they, for, be, both because they didn't want to figure in this story anymore, and I, I frankly didn't regard that as um, high points in my career. Um, but I certainly remembered the ones who helped me, and the help was was awesome, um, and continues to be, uh, even though I'm 77 and retired. So, uh, and I try to do the same. Uh, it's why it's why when a history professor who's a friend of mine calls me from the Naval Academy and asks me if I want to participate in a podcast, I would say yes. It's an important inflection point and also an important insight, I think, uh, because looking back at everything you've done up to that point, it, it does seem almost like an overdetermined trajectory. I mean, you were well educated. You you'd had those intellectual interests. You'd followed up on them uh, con- self consciously. You m- had certain kinds of experiences or met certain kinds of s- uh, superior officers who opened certain doors for you. And it, it, I wouldn't say that it was a foregone conclusion that you were going to end up being a, 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 a playing a crucial role in in how we understand Navy strategy in the modern era. But it certainly does look more like you should be doing that than a lot of other people who might have had that in mind and didn't get the opportunity. Does that make sense? Or is that kind of fabulous? Yes, it makes sense in terms of my career. Remember that everybody else in the political, military, strategic planning, subspecialty community was first and foremost a specialist, a ship driver, a pilot, an NFO, a snake eater, a submariner, uh, not many in the pole mill arena, and we can talk about that later. Um, so the second letter came back from the chief of naval personnel, uh, signed out by, this is very important, signed out by the head of officer distribution, a rear admiral, who I'd never heard of. Why would I? His name was Carlisle Trost. And he signed out a letter to me as the head of officer distribution because he was getting his baptism of personnel on his way to becoming the CNO, uh, no, you ought to have this job and then that job and this job to be broadened. I didn't want to be broadened. I wanted to be narrow and help the Navy. And in fact, I wasn't competent enough to be broadened uh, as he was. But he sent me a letter. He signed it. And it said, thank you very much. We'll assign you to Op 60. You can't go right now. You're going to have to serve out your full three-year tour, but you don't have to stay a fourth year. 
And at the end of three years, you're going to go to OP60. Of course, I did not know that that had been endorsed by Admiral Engen, who was one of the, the tribe, right? Um, and that, that would have helped. And so I walked in the door in the Pentagon with Twee at uh, what, in 1976, uh, having had three years of London, traveled all around Europe, had a baby, uh, and with great trepidation, the Pentagon, oh, <laughs> great trepidation because I discovered that one of my bosses was going to be Admiral Bob Hanks, who I'd never heard of, and my, his deputy was Admiral Jim Stockdale, who I certainly had heard of. So I'm going, right, so I'm going to be here, me with my Vietnamese wife, working for the guy who's just had the Vietnamese beat his brains out for the last six years. How is this going to go down? Well, I discovered that I'm a very small-minded person, and Admiral Stockdale, of course, was not a small-minded person at all. He and Sybil took Twee under their wings. Uh, he was very good to me. Sybil was very good to Twee. And uh, I, 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 remain, I, I remember the story, and I remain ashamed of it, that I would have thought such, such a thing of such a man. Anyway, he, was a, he, he became a, 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 a great, I, I tell you, the, the best Stockdale story. He, he walked in the office one day, and uh, nobody was there because they were all busy doing something, and I was there for some reason. And he said, who knows anything in here about Africa? And I said, I know some things about Africa. I'm an, I'm an IR major. He said, I'll never forget this, what he said. He said, I've been away. That's how he started it. I've been away, and I don't know much about what's been going on in the world. Can you come on up to my office and talk to me about Africa? Aye, sir. Uh, Right now, tomorrow, next week, whenever. Uh, I developed a thing. I went in. I gave him a tutorial. I don't remember what was in it. I don't even know where it is. And uh, when he was done, he said, how about South America? Uh, and I'm ashamed to say that, that uh, I, I, I'm not even sure how you'd go about doing that in the day and the age before, uh, before Google. <laughs> you know? So... There we were. Well, he was he was my boss's boss's boss, and um, remember, there's another boss in there too, and um, he was in charge of all of this stuff, um, strategy and policy, uh, and yet he was who he was and had the experiences that he'd had, uh, and was this colossal human being, uh, and, and 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 an intellectual. Uh, that far transcended my knowledge of what was going on in Guinea or the Congo or Upper Volta or wherever. Rebel Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.